0: Thank you for tuning in to Not Suitable for Anyone. As a reminder, if you'd like to financially support the show, don't. Just help other people find us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or just telling a friend. If you do want to put your hard-earned dollars to work to support our mission, here's what you can do. Buy or rent movies. Redbox, iTunes, Vudu, it doesn't matter. Hell, even an old-fashioned Blu-ray. Leave a review on Letterboxd or Amazon and tell them that you heard about it right here on Not Suitable. For Anyone. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode, episode 41, 42, is it? Of Not Suitable For Anyone. As always, I am Patrick Anderson. I took a little break. Last week. There was no episode last week. There was supposed to be, even though I was out of town, but I forgot to take the audio file with me on my laptop. And I didn't realize it until we were already, you know, like half an hour into our trip and decided I wasn't going back for it. So there would be no episode, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Uh, But don't worry, we'll get everything to you uh, out in due order. Um, So. Uh, so we're a little bit, uh, a little bit late and a little bit behind the gun this week because, of course, having been out on vacation for an entire week, it felt great. I actually didn't watch any horror movies or do anything, you know, even remotely work or podcast-related and just got a chance to relax. And if you get a chance to do the same, I highly recommend it. Um, so... With that uh, with that having been said, uh, today is a great show. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be... I'm, uh, the first segment here is going to be a little bit shorter because, uh, again, didn't really have time to, to do a full prep and everything, but that doesn't mean I don't have a crowdfunding project for you. Uh, I do, in fact. I'm really excited about this one. I didn't even know there was going to be a Kickstarter for this, but... Uh, but there is uh, Jonathan Barkin, who uh, some of you may know. He is uh, he has worked in the industry. He has worked in distribution. He has, I think, been a been a producer you know, on the creative side. He's been in media. I think he he either founded or was very instrumental with uh, with uh, Dread Central, and uh, he is producing now a documentary um, or directing rather a documentary. Called mental health and horror. Uh, it's really exciting. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, of of recent uh, in recent uh, months and weeks, um, and you know over the last couple of years about the connection between horror and mental health. Uh, there is even a whole podcast, one of my absolute favorite podcasts, which I was uh, very lucky to be able to guest on the Psychoanalysis Podcast with Jen Adams, Laura Understalls, and Mike Snoonian. Uh, fantastic podcast! If you don't listen to it, uh, check it out. You should listen to that show uh, long before you listen to mine. It's really good. They're really great, and they have some really uh, fascinating, really fun discussions. Uh, I really like it. So, yeah, check out psychoanalysis. Um, anyway, that digression aside, yeah, I did want to uh, did want to talk about this Kickstarter for mental health and horror. It's a documentary. Uh, again, by Jonathan Barkin. You can find it over on Kickstarter. They're trying to raise thirty thousand dollars, which is you know kind of a fair, respectable sum. I think that you know will go a long way towards you know producing a great, good quality uh, documentary. I think Jonathan Barkin's horror knowledge is fantastic, and yeah, this exploration between horror and mental health is is really, really fascinating. I uh, never, never get tired of hearing from people about the the way that horror has horror films and genre films have helped them process and understand, you know, traumas and triggers and things that have happened to them in the past and, and given them some measure of control over things that, you know, happened to the, that were maybe out of their control, you know, whether, again, whether it's trauma or abuse or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, it seems maybe counterintuitive to some people, but... There is a valid connection here, and I'm excited about this, this documentary, and you can, you can be a part of it. The perks include you know, getting a digital copy of the documentary, getting physical media, DVD, or Blu-ray. They have posters, buttons. Uh, producer credits are up for grabs. Uh, really, everything is up for grabs right now because it is very early in the process. They are only on day one or so of a 30-day campaign. And they've hit the ground running. Um, I'll tell you what, they are at, I'm looking at it right now as I record this, they're just over $7,000. So, you know, closing in on a third of the way to their $30,000 goal uh, on, on the first, I guess, really second day of the campaign. So it's great news. Um, good work, guys. And, you know, please go check it out. I think this is going to be a fantastic project, and, uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited for it. So. Uh, what else? Uh, well, I did receive one of my uh, Kickstarter rewards recently. I backed a Kickstarter from uh, Matt Shore, who is uh, in the middle of a series of comic books called Moby Dick Back from the Deep. Uh, I love this concept. This is basically taking and building on the, uh, the, the, public, uh, the now pu- very much public domain Moby Dick lore and essentially reimagining uh, the Moby Dick as a zombie white whale who has come back to life and uh, the crew captain Ahab and crew who are all zombies and doomed essentially to forever hunt down this uh, this zombie white whale and stop it from hurting others so it's sort of a you know zombie whale meets jaws kind of thing the first issue uh, the first uh, four issues now are available uh, the fourth issue I just got through a Kickstarter, uh, issues one through three, uh, you can, looks like you can pick up from his, uh, from his website, and let me just get that link for you. Yeah, it's backfromthedeep.com. It looks like you can order the first three issues on there. I, I don't know when the fourth issue is going to hit, maybe sometime after everything is settled with the uh, with the crowdfunding campaign for issue four, uh, or just watch for uh, the crowdfunding campaign for Issue 5 which uh, should be coming out uh, I would assume at some point and maybe they'll, uh, there'll be a reward there to catch up on uh, on all five issues at that point but you can buy the back issues uh, at his website backfromthedeep.com if you don't want to wait for that I'll put a link to all of that down in the show notes but it's really funny I really, really am enjoying it uh, the artwork looks great and it's that same, it's that kind of concept that I love, which is you know taking something familiar, a couple of things that are familiar from from everything from Jaws to this Moby Dick and Captain Ahab car- character, and sort of reimagining them as zombies and putting them in present de- present times or quasi present times essentially. Um, it's a lot of fun. I I, I really enjoy it. And I'm I highly recommend it. So um, you know it's just another one of those creative things. I know I usually talk about movies on this podcast, but. Uh, I'm going to branch out, and I'm going to talk about some other things that are at least, you know, sort of in the genre, you know, horror-related or just generally weird stuff uh, like this, and, you know, comic books are right up there. I don't read a lot of comics. I don't read a lot of, like, mainstream comics. Every once in a while, I'll go to the library, and I'll see something that kind of catches my attention, but as a general rule, I don't read a lot of them. But independent comics, uh, I love. I love to go on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, places like that, and... Buy, uh, and, and buy comic books and back comics from creators that are just trying to do something and publish something on their own, sort of going outside the regular industry. Um, I got uh, Atomic Victory Squad number one that way. Uh, really dig that one. Uh, Moby Dick, Back from the Deep, uh, another fantastic, fun uh, thing. Uh, yeah, so definitely, absolutely check that out. Um, okay, so one last thing before uh, we get into our main topic after the break and that is a trailer for a movie that just released uh, i'm going to try to check it out and unfortunately could not get to this before it released but i just saw the trailer because it finally it dropped this week and it's called babysitter must die the setup is that there's a babysitter who is in the middle of a game of hide-and-seek with uh, the girl when a home invasion takes place. And now she's off in this great hiding spot, and the people that have broken in don't realize that there's somebody there waiting for them and hiding. It looks like it's my turn to hide, right? Start counting, okay? Okay. Pizza's here! Who are you? What are you... Devil. So yeah, now you've got this badass babysitter who's hiding in the house uh, on the run from these these home invaders. It kind of looks like you know, like maybe like a mashup between you know something like Ready or Not and um, you know movies like Home Alone or Becky. There's this one sequence in the trailer where the babysitter presumably has set up this very Rube Goldbergian type of device with a tripwire and a thing that flings a bottle at somebody I, it, it, it looks ridiculous there's definitely some trailer moments where you know she looks like it's kind of like this badass babysitter from hell
1: you're a total badass don't tell your parents about that
0: and you know there's maybe some like you know wisecracking it stars uh, Riley Scott as the uh, as the titular babysitter, she has you know been done some TV and, and been in some other movies uh, lately. But this seems like you know like maybe one of her first real like starring roles. It was directed by a guy named uh, Cole Glass, who I don't really quite recognize. I don't think I've seen anything that he's done, but this looks interesting. It's being released by Blue Fox Entertainment. Uh, they've released some movies that I've really really loved, uh, movies like Braid. Um, There's a movie I talked about on this show called "Eat Me." Uh, definitely go back and check out that episode and interview with uh, Jacqueline Wright. Uh, that's a fantastic movie. Um, Blue Fox is a, is a, is a good distributor. I like I like their stuff. Uh, this one, um, you know, to be honest, the the trailer is not you know cut together that well. But the I'll never get enough of just the idea of having somebody. You know, trapped in a house, uh, with you know gangsters or killers or whatever kidnappers, and they have to like booby trap the house and defend themselves or rescue somebody. I'll never get tired of that. In all honesty, uh, I love that setup, and I will watch it. I'll watch it all day long. So, that's Babysitter Must Die. It's out now on VOD, rental, purchase, digital purchase, whatever. You can get it anywhere. Uh, links in the show notes, as always. Um, so now coming up next, I'm gonna take a break. And when I get back, we're going to talk to short filmmaker Brian Lenato. Uh, I actually don't know if he's short, uh, but he is a filmmaker of presumably at least like normal height who makes short films. So, um, yeah, let's look forward to that coming up next.
2: Well, because it would be the one that happened to describe Crowhand so thank you for uh, talking about it on your
0: show I appreciate that oh yeah thanks uh, yeah well I appreciate you checking it out yeah that's that was a that was a fun one I am uh, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who I would watch a feature length version of Crowhand um.
2: <laughs> cool it's, I uh yeah, it's funny. I have so many ideas, and none of them ever. I sort of talked myself out of doing feature adaptations of the shorts I make. Interesting enough, there was rumblings of like either a crow hand, at least a crow sequel, but not. You know, but I talked myself out of out of doing that. <laughs> did you get to watch um, the program?
0: I did. Um, I okay. did. I, I I loved it. I think it's. I think it's uh, gonna. I think it's gonna be a hit at the the festival. That'd
2: be cool. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'd love to talk about, you know, uh, whichever films you'd like to talk about. You know, the the older ones obviously have been off the fest circuit for a number of years and it's exciting to see them back, you know, being able to play in front of an audience again. So I'm excited about some of the earlier work. So yeah, whatever you want to ask or talk about, I'm very down to talk about anything
0: sure sure so my my first question and i'm gonna start asking people this um is i i'm curious if you've seen the mitchells versus the machines yet
2: i have yeah i was on vacation back in april may like late april early may and uh one night we were just hanging out at the hotel and we were in um gosh where were we we were in orlando actually and um we just decided, I think it had just come out. We, we watched the, the Mitchell's versus the machines and yeah, I was really um, excited about how good it was. And like the first thing that popped, you know, was that it was about a kid who wanted to make movies. And I truly love that that was like the protagonist was this girl who made films on her own. They're silly. And then she got to go to, she got to apply to film school. And I think that, it was great and then on top of that there's like giant killer robots and you know great uh humor with the family and great voice acting so i don't know it had a lot of uh awesome qualities to it and i was a fan of gravity falls the disney show Uh, my wife and i watched all that and uh we appreciate that uh the director of the Mitchells versus the Machines, I believe, worked on Gravity Falls, and Alex Hirsch was like a consultant on the movie. So, it's uh, he's a funny guy, and that was a funny show. So, it was nice to see that kind of humor carry over into this uh, particular movie.
0: Yeah, um, I, I like the whole team behind this, and um, because I think uh, you know, it was um, you know, Lord and Miller were on as producers, and I think even though they didn't direct or even write it i think you could feel their their fingerprints on it because you know they've been getting paid for a while now to make you know to make big budget uh movies that are you know that are essentially very silly um and you know and and are irreverent and you know sort of you know poke fun at, at, at themselves and and the subject matter and yeah
2: it's it's great to see that kind of sense of humor in, in animation. I really love when things sort of get absurd or, you know, uh, farcical or um, self-deprecating in its, in its humor of like the medium or, you know, tropes in filmmaking and stuff like that. I like seeing that kind of humor because I, I grew up watching The Simpsons a lot. So any kind of humor that's like classic Simpsons in movies today, I'm always like, this is great. I'm down for this
0: yeah yeah and the other the other thing that that really jumped out at me about it is that it's you know what what ends up saving the day essentially is you know one of her you know silly homemade movies
2: yeah yep she <laughs> shows you the power of filmmaking so
0: yeah that was that was that was very powerful to me. I was kind of late to seeing it i i had I came to it after everyone had, had been recommending it and people had just been saying, Oh, it's really good, it's really funny, and it's you know, it's about this girl who wants to be a filmmaker. And I said, Okay, I'll 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 get to it. But man, if I if I'd have known, <laughs> you know, what the you know, that that's really what I took away from it is that uh, you know, is that people people making, you know, crazy, you know, silly DIY movies uh is uh is what's going to save the world someday.
2: Yes. Yeah, so hopefully I can save the world somehow with Crowhand or something like
0: that you have the retrospective it's playing uh at uh it'll be playing at Chattanooga Film Festival
1: yes
0: and you it it kind of goes through your work in stages but you you sort of kick it off with Crowhand
2: uh yeah I w- you know I was thinking about how to put put it in order. And I did like the idea of splitting it up into pieces, like chapters of my career. But I, Crohan was such a handshake of a movie for me. Uh, basically, this is like a good introduction of who I am as a filmmaker, uh, the kind of humor I'm into, the kind of style I'm into, and the fact that it's so fast, it's so quick. Um, and it's a short, literally. Um, so I figured that was a good introductory, uh, film into the retrospective to give people a taste. And it's also like, comes pretty much in the middle of my career, I would say as a filmmaker. Um, and, uh, I'm quite proud of it. Uh, so I, so I figured it was a good introductory before, uh, I introduce it. And then we go back to the past, so like 2005, where we start with my film.
0: So it yeah, it kind of seems almost like a I mean I don't want to say necessarily a turning point, but I would
2: say I would say it was a turning point absolutely. Um, okay. I had the film I made before that was um, Welcome to Dignity Pastures, and uh, you know I had made it for the ABCs of Death Two competition, and um, you know we just made it and it it did did okay on the festival circuit, and we were at the Florida Film Festival when I came across the, and I've told this story, actually you can see the story of me explaining how Hand came to be on the arrow player. Um, but basically um, I came across this totem on the ground in the parking lot of the festival and I pick it up and my wife is like, it's creepy, don't pick it up. And I said, hey, what's gonna happen? So we joked that like my hand got cursed and turned into a crow and I yelled at Hand, And we said, you know, we laughed and we said that would be a great idea for a movie. Um, And, uh, you know, in the past, I may have said, like, oh, that's too stupid of an idea, or that's too silly, but instead, we decided, you know, the hell with it, let's do it, because it's funny, and it's short, so it'll be like a fun, stupid movie to do, and um, when I was cutting it later that year, and I never felt this way about a film I had made before was, I got a good feeling about this film, this has something to it, you know, and uh, you know, we submitted to a couple of festivals like that. I had a history with, but I also submitted to a couple of bigger festivals. Uh, one was Slam Dance, um, which happens the same year at the same time as Sundance, and the other was South by Southwest. And uh, we didn't get into slam dance, but like a couple of days before I had to leave the country for my job, I got a call or got an email uh, from South by Southwest saying they accepted the film. And I was just completely floored that this stupid idea that we had this little two and a half minute movie uh got into one of the biggest festivals in the country and uh we of course went and had a terrific time and it was really cool to see like the other kinds of films that were playing at the festival and meet the other filmmakers so i would definitely call crowhand a uh turning point in my career
0: okay when you when you look at the films that that sort of follow, I mean, it seems like you definitely run with this uh, this idea of you know nothing nothing is off limits. I feel like when I watch your, your movies, nothing is too silly, nothing is taboo, um, and and I, maybe being in that short, yeah, uh, you know, me, medium kind of gives you the the freedom to do that.
2: Yes, I definitely uh, agree. It's a lot easier to take those kinds of risks in the short form, and you know the short film as a as a medium for storytelling is such an exciting and freeing way to really experiment. And, you know, you don't even have to come up with a story that's cohesive or even have a story. It could just be weird stuff for like two to four minutes and uh, just be visually amusing or disgusting or uh, frightening or whatever. Um, so yeah, after Crohan, I definitely felt like um, emboldened maybe to take more risks as a filmmaker. And uh, definitely the follow-up we we had for Hand was Gwilliam. And uh, Gwilym was an idea we had back in 2010. And back then I was like, I don't think we can do this right now. Like, it's too, it's too much. And I'm trying to still establish my voice and my position in the film community and the film festival world. So I wasn't quite ready to tell such a daring story. And then, and then, you know, after Crohan was successful at South by Southwest, uh, my wife was the one who said like, we should do William next, that should be the next project. So, so it was, and it actually worked out uh, very well. It it did even better than Crohan to my surprise. And then, um, and then after that, I felt more uh, like emboldened to, uh, Take even more risks and try and do something like BFF Girls, Um, but that one did not do as well as I thought it was going to do. It did it did very well, but there were some places where I thought it would have landed and it didn't. And some people were uh, more taken aback by that one, I think, because of its subject matter. But you know, I took a risk, and thankfully it didn't destroy my career. But I really do admire filmmakers that really go swinging for the fences um with some of their films. Um things like Zardoz and Southland Tales and um, you know, uh anything by Ken Russell is uh, really inspiring because they really go for it. Um and it doesn't always land, but I mean it's that's I I really uh, appreciate and respect filmmakers that want to do those kinds of things because why why be mediocre when you can do something really outlandish and really make a statement, even if people mostly hate it.
0: I mean, that's the whole point of, of storytelling, I think, is you, you want to, you want to move people. You want to make them feel something. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: You, I want to evoke a reaction. Um, You know, I've, I've I've mentioned before that the film that made me want to make movies was Jurassic Park and uh, seeing that on a big screen, like with my dad, I was 10 years old and seeing how he reacted to that film like really stuck with me and it scared the shit out of him. But uh like it was it was cool to see a movie like do that and evoke a reaction from, you know, the audience, whether it's like terror or awe, you know, and that movie has both. So I uh I think about that a lot. I think about movies that take risks and that are different and that are bold and then try to evoke a reaction from the audience. You know, I don't want to be like a person who is like always trying to shock people, but it it is kind of exciting to do that kind of thing. Like making William was quite exciting. It was a quite exciting time for us to be playing that at festivals and Crohan too. It was exciting to see people have such a great reaction to the movie and the, the random uh, homages that people had made of Crohan after it's a uh, Came out like there was a band in New Zealand that cut an album and they have a song called Crow Hand and it was just based off the fact that they saw the movie and they loved it and they made a song about it. And then there was a guy in Saskatchewan um, that uh, cosplayed as the as the guy character from uh, Crow Hand and he I took like he took a picture and sent it to me and I just couldn't believe that that somebody all the way in Saskatchewan like dressed up like the character from Crow Hand and then this band in New Zealand is making a song based on the movie and people have made William artwork so it's it's pretty cool that something that i made and i feel like i'm small potatoes compared to some other like even other short filmmakers um you know it's really something that that i was able to inspire or affect people in
0: that way that's amazing um <laughs> that's really wild and and i mean and and Crowhand, you know, when I first when I first watched it, I mean, I was just I was in tears. I was laughing so hard at uh, so I think it just it just hits all those right notes and the timing is um you know, it's just pitch perfect. Oh, thank you. I think of it as a tragedy. That's every like married guy's worst nightmare, right? Is that your wife tells you not to do something, you do it anyway, and then it yep. ends up <laughs> <laughs> so i'm screwing you both it's like oh
2: yeah i told you not yeah, to do that yeah i definitely um thought about that uh, when we made the film i thought about it's, you know it's about stupidity and not listening and stuff so it was cool to uh it's cool that you you know thought about that uh, thought about it as, as a tragedy even though like obviously it's like an absurd kind of comedy um but you know comedies are It's interesting. You never know, like, what joke is going to land with what audiences, you know? Like, some people like when he screams, it's in my nose, you know, when the blood is spurting in his face. Like, I think that's funny. It doesn't always get a laugh, but the one that always gets a laugh at screenings was when um, Caitlin, his, his wife, like, brings up the phone and takes a picture, like, without even, like, breaking eye contact with him, just snaps a picture, and that wasn't even in the original script. We just came up with it right then and there on the set, which was... Which
0: is fun. Yeah. It's a fun way to to sort of you know kick things off and uh and, and introduce you know what we're about to see because then you kind of go into some of your, your older work. Um and thank you for you know making me think about MySpace again for the first time and <laughs> it feels like forever.
2: Yep, that was the way I promoted my stuff. Was I had like spe- separate MySpace pages for different films I was working on. So yeah, I miss MySpace a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's uh, there's the, the joke has been going around that you know that Tom just wanted to be our friend and <laughs> we yeah. abandoned him for uh, yeah, you know, a, uh, and worshipped a false idol with the uh, Zuckerberg.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe MySpace will make a comeback. Who knows?
0: so yeah but uh but i really like this video it it kind of felt like something that um it, like if you gave somebody if you gave somebody a, f- a few hundred bucks and said make something that looks like a tool video um it it might look like you know i I imagine it might look like what uh, cast it casket climber insect god looked like
2: oh thank you so much Yeah, so, well their videos are amazing Quite a compliment. Um, yeah, that was my first film out of school. And um my career sort of sort of started off on a very serious tone. A friend of mine, um, Keith Orzek, had passed away rather tragically. And he that was his band, uh Kagi Bunshin, which is like a reference to the Dutch anime Naruto. Um anyway, they were like a core band at my school, and he was a very talented musician, and he was like a filmmaker as well, and he had died rather tragically in the summer of 2005 and uh you know I was so like taken that like all of his work and his film which he didn't complete like like nobody knows where that footage is and his film never got finished and it just scared the hell out of me as a you know as a person like just thinking like god like we're only here for so much so many years and you know what if like I go suddenly I would want you know uh somebody to know like what I did and so I it really kickstarted my career and uh, it really inspired me to like be as prolific as possible and to get my films out to film festivals or websites or this and that and try and get my work seen by people and you know so it's weird that that's sort of like what was the was the kickstart for my was my career right after school was the tragic death of my friend and you know his his he was so talented and that's why it's like it motivated me to work as hard as I have been working these past 15 years but but you know at the same time it's like kind of a silly video of this like stick puppet that's like slapping its gums and screaming but I tried to you know do it as like you know low budget and lo-fi as possible because I felt like that was their sound too and I that the visuals would lend itself to the to the music and stuff and it did really well um it, it played in california and we won a couple of awards and it screened at the new york city horror film festival and yeah it was a really good start to my career was a uh, casket climber
0: cool cool yeah and i i like um i like these these early shorts and i'm kind of i'm kind of curious you know as you're as you're making these you know at this point in your career do you do you have a do you have a particular audience in mind or you're still just sort of trying to figure out your voice and, um, and sort of learn, you know, what you can do behind the camera.
2: I wasn't thinking um that much about like an audience. I started to a little later and then I felt like that, that wasn't good for me. Um, but I was more, more or less like looking at films, particularly like, lots of B movies and lots of like experimental films and like, trying to see like oh can I try and emulate that like I'm a very I'm very interested with like classic special effects from films from like you know the 50s all the way to the 80s and 90s before everything went completely pgi like I love models and fish tank effects and things like that so I a lot of like what I was trying to do was like experimenting with those aesthetics and incorporating it into my own way. But obviously like I don't have the budget or the abilities like that those very talented people at like industrial Light and magic have. So I try to do it in my own way. So there's sort of this, you know, garage band ILM kind of thing that I was trying to go for.
0: Definitely the influences also I think are are really felt in this early stage. Cause you, you can tell I can you know you can tell even even then that you have you have a fondness for practicals puppets miniatures you know, in-camera effects you know some of the some of the others like the like the, you know eight-bit ghost hop have very much are reminiscent of uh of like house uh the the japanese uh, uh 1977 movie
2: oh i love that movie yes uh thank you so much um Yeah, um, well, uh, Attacazoids Deploy is definitely like a direct homage to like Paul Verhoeven and how he, you know, did propaganda stuff in Robocop and Starship Troopers. And, um, you know, it's funny, Attacazoids was this film that I thought was going to get me like an Academy Award nomination. Like I was really pushing, like that's where I was in my head. I was like 24 years old at the time. And I was like, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get this into festivals and it's going to be you know, like it's going to win something and I can get it into the Oscar race and whatnot. And, um, that obviously didn't happen, but we became a finalist in a festival that was Academy qualified. So we got pretty close. Um, but that one was like a cool idea. And that was like one of the few ideas I had in my career where I was like, Oh, I could possibly like try and adapt this into a feature or tell more stories or do more world building, but after we did Attackers Deploy, and I was thinking about like what could we do, what else could we do, I started to get disinterested in all the world building of Attackers. So I decided to not do a trilogy. I was planning, I was thinking about doing a trilogy, and each each sequel would have like another exclamation point. So that's why Attackers Deploy, that's why has one exclamation point, and Attackers Deploy has two exclamation points. The third one would have <laughs> had three exclamation points. Um, but uh yeah i just decided not to not to go for it and try to do something else <clears throat> and uh eight ghost hop was a fun experiment i had just bought one of those like flip cameras i don't know if you remember these but they were like a pocket camera yep,
1: yep. and uh, i think i still have one hook...
2: <laughs> yeah so like they shot 720p like 2997 and uh i said like i'm going to make a film with just this camera like cuz i was also kind of inspired by somebody like Steven Soderbergh who would you know, shoot films on 35 and then he would shoot something with this kind of camera only or do this kind of thing. So I liked his ability to rubber band in his like budgets and what he uses to make films. So I was trying to do the same thing. And with AP Ghost Hop, we literally just bought a little fish tank, filled it with water and made these ghost set of tissues. and. I was inspired by the uh, ghosts at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark that come out of the Ark and kill all the Nazis. Those were done with like puppets that would swim around in a fish tank. So I wanted to like try that too. And my brother and I just decided to like film a bunch of these tissue ghosts and then make a little music video. Uh, and this robot that I made out of this like cool water bottle that I bought at a store. It was like this art deco water bottle. And I was like, I want to use that and make that into something. So we like turned it into a robot puppet, and you know, then there became eight-bit ghost talk.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. And um, you know, and in addition to that, I think you're you know you're experimenting with also with different uh, you know cameras and different mediums. Um, you know, you mentioned the flip camera. Uh, I imagine some of these other ones were were digital. Um and then you the you have uh the transmission, which is the the super eight, which looks fantastic. I love that uh, that that just that that look of the super eight. Well,
2: thank you. Uh, that was the second time I ever used film. We did um we shot super eight before that a couple of years prior, again doing stuff with ghosts and fish tanks. I was making something for uh, my friend Curtis has a festival in the DC area called the Spooky Movie Film Festival. And he also was doing like a horror host show called Spooky Movie Television. So in the retrospective, there's the opening for Spooky Movie Television, which we shot digitally, but at the same time, we also shot on Super 8 film and we made a bumper for his film festival. So um, we entered that in a contest for Pro 8, and we won some film. We won like four rolls of film, which equals 10 minutes basically. And when we shot the transmission, you know, uh, we decided let's let's do it on film but, you know, because we had so little film, we actually shot digitally as well and we would shoot the takes until Don and Holly and Vince got the cadence right at the performance and then we rolled on film once for those takes and then that's what ended up in the the, uh, the final cut of the film, except for the ending that had to be reshot and that was all done digitally and the, the film grain was added but what's interesting about that movie is it's a hybrid of film and digital because <clears throat> anything that was supernatural was a digital element even so much that like when um Vince who plays like the monster at the end he looks completely crisp and digital and he's standing outside of the film uh grain so he looks totally different than like Don does when he was shot on film so we were it was fun playing with those kinds of uh aesthetics for that movie since it dealt with like a transmission coming from television and you know popping out to get this, this old man
0: there was another one there's another one sort of later on i think that um referenced 100 feet of film competition
2: yes um that was shot for 100 feet of film competition as you mentioned uh, Kodak in Atlanta was hosting something with the Atlanta Film Society so my brother and i entered and you know you get it's a cool competition where you get 100 feet uh, one roll of 16 millimeter film and you make a film and you, you know, some people did narratives, some people did music videos. And we decided to go with this sort of experimental film to pay homage to our dad who passed away in 2019. Um, so, uh, and that was, that was cool to do. We didn't really know, like I had ideas for shots, but it was really fun to experiment with trying double exposures and um, you know, shooting little miniatures and trying different interesting like aesthetics with that. Like I'm I'm very much into experimental film, but I don't consider myself an experimental filmmaker. Though so some of my stuff may have out like elements of it. Um, but like I was thinking about like Caskett Climber, and I was thinking about Memorial, which is the film uh, that you're mentioning. Uh, and how similar they are in their aesthetics and that there's this lo-fi quality to them. There's miniatures in it and they're both about death, So it's kind of an interesting uh, span, you know, to go from Castle Congress to Memorial. <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, I love, I love film. I want to shoot more film. Um, I think I've only shot it maybe a handful of times, but I'm hoping down the line I can shoot even more. My brother is also a big... Fan of film, and he's, he shot one of his uh, short films, Richard Nixon Getaway Driver. That was all shot on 16 and Super 8 film. So, we're big fans of film, even though I, when I went to school, I never even touched it. I went to school in New Jersey and I majored in what was called electronic filmmaking, which meant uh, mini DV tapes. So, and uh, when I was like deciding on where to go to school, I decided on that place because because it was called electronic filmmaking. And I thought like, well, I, I have a feeling that this is where it's gonna go in the future, you know, for filmmaking. And I was somehow right. Um, because by then around 2000 or so, like filmmakers were starting to shoot mini DV or DV cam or whatever for their feature films, like a lot of the indie budget uh, films at that time. So I thought, yeah, this could be where it's going. So, and sure enough, it did
0: yeah that's interesting so from here the retrospective kind of takes a turn into a series of of like bumpers and uh, and opening sequences for uh, some pilots and, and shows that you that you filmed and this just got me you know curious on a more from a more you know practical standpoint i mean when you're making your narrative shorts and 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 videos and things you have obviously pretty much complete creative freedom you're trying to you're trying to you know, figure out what kind of story you want to tell but with these obviously you're you're sort of being asked to create something with a with a specific purpose in mind so i guess you know for how much you know how much you know sort of freedom do you have to uh to to do what you want and how much um you know how much and how much is it kind of restricted by you know what um you know what the what the project sort of calls for
2: Um, well, actually, I would say that, like, for the most part, every uh, bumper that I made, everyone who reached out to me said that I could do whatever I wanted. But of course, you know, I would pitch them what I was thinking. And then, you know, most of them would just be like, yeah, that sounds great. Go for it. Um, Some may have like notes or um, like for the Awesome Fest, we had to submit a version that didn't have the song awesome so we had to like because they wanted to play it for like all audiences so we had to have a version where that song was taken out and we put in like the finale from the 1812 overture in um but uh but mostly um every like festival that approached me to make a bumper i came up with this idea and they seemed very down with it so uh i was very happy to have that kind of freedom and you know it was always kept them updated on like the progress and what I was doing and showing them rough cuts and stuff like that. And they were all really excited about what I was doing. So yeah, it was a very, uh, very nice uh, uh, time to be making those bumpers. And, you know, it's it's weird. I'm, the, the whole reason I got into making them was like, I thought it would somehow help help me as a filmmaker or help my career. And it did a little bit like we submitted for some awards and we got some awards from like the Chicago Television Awards. And uh, we received a couple of Telly Awards uh, for the work we did on some of the bumpers. Um, but yeah, it was just another fun place to try different aesthetics and try different techniques. Like the Very Alive Film Fest, I wanted to emulate the title card from both versions of The Thing, um, The Thing from Another World, and then John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, so at the end where it says Buried Alive, we actually, I looked up like a video or I looked up an article about how they made the title card with the flaming garbage bag and the, the fog shooting through the glass. And we, we tried to emulate that. And uh, the Film Fest is the digital part. The, the, when Film Fest comes across the screen, that's the digital element. But Buried Alive was like, practical, that was in camera. Um, so that was fun to to do that. And some, uh, the one for uh, Boston Underground, where the rabbit is like dry humping tapes, and it's like in this video, video cassette city. Um, I was really into Scott Pilgrim at the time. So there's a lot of like, text flying and video game graphics and stuff like that. And I was really like inspired by sort of like an audiovisual overload of sound effects and imagery and flashing stuff. I was very into that at the time. So Bacchus Attackus is, pays pays homage to that uh, that particular uh, <laughs> movie and that kind of like filmmaking. It's uh, it's cool. I really love when there's like exciting music and like great sound design and like these like really eye-popping visuals. Uh, so yeah, that movie was very inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> I probably directly just ripped it off, but uh, it was just my fun way of like, you know, experimenting and, and doing that kind of thing in my own work. And we actually shot that partially on VHS, um, high def and uh, 16 millimeter. So there's like a fusion of the three mediums Uh, in that uh, in that in that particular bumper but the city with the the rabbit and the videotapes that was all done with forced perspective like in camera which
0: is really cool oh cool yeah that's that's really neat and that's um again i mean it's got it just gives it this uh you know this 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 quality to it where you know i mean film filmmaking is you know in in some sense it's you know it's 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 an illusion right you're trying to you know sort of you know trick the, the audience into you know thinking that you know something they're seeing is you know is what's actually happening you know, a lot of the you know practical side of filmmaking is to sort of hide the strings so to speak i don't mind seeing strings
2: same same i uh, i love when um the movie, like, doesn't have, like, an actual, like, it's not, uh, grounded in reality. Uh, there's a film I really love, uh, called Tears of the Black Tiger, and, uh, it's this Thai Western, and, uh, from the year 2000, and there's this really fantastic scene where this guy is squaring off with another cowboy, and it's so obvious that it's, like, a set, and, the sun and sky is like a painting. It's like an obvious painting. And uh, there's this shot where they square off, and as opposed to the camera doll- dollying like um, vertically, they put the actor on a dolly and he moves, but the shot stays stationary. And I just love that sort of like break in reality. I love the artificiality of of filmmaking. I see it a lot in like Ken Russell's movies and, you know, the movie House from 1977 uh, has a lot of that. I love when a film is a film uh, and it's acting like a film. I'm not very, I'm not too, too interested in like completely realistic uh, films, but some films that are grounded in reality that do something like super cinematic, like not cut the camera, like so many shots in like Children of Men, You know, that's a very, even though it's a sci-fi story, it's got a very gritty, realistic look to it. But Mm -hmm. there's, like, amazing camera work that, um, I mean, none of that takes me out of the movie. I think the only thing that would take me out of the movie is if I'm watching something at home and my phone goes off or the laundry finishes, or if I'm at the theater and some guy's talking too loud, like, that stuff takes me out of the movie. Whatever happens in the movie, like, And if there's like a break in reality or something like that, that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, that makes my eyes widen or the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Like something exciting is happening and, you know, it gets me more at attention. Like I was watching a Ken Russell movie. I keep talking about it because I just saw List. And um, I wasn't that into the first half of it. But then like the second half kicked in. And uh, it's basically about this composer Franz Liszt. And his relationship to the composer, Richard Wagner. And all of a sudden, like halfway through the movie, Wagner becomes a vampire, you know? So it's just like, it's just like, wow, that's great. Like, I don't care that Wagner wasn't a real vampire. Like, he's a vampire in this movie. And I'm really excited about it. And like, Liszt is playing this piano that's shooting flames out. And it just like totally went berserk. And I really love when movies do that, you know? They get very stylistic and they get very, uh, you know, they go off the rails. Uh, I think that's the most exciting because you really feel like the film is alive, and like it's kind of like a wild animal. Like some films are like they just break free and become these wild animals. That's uh, really exciting to watch.
0: Yeah, it feels like literally anything could happen. Um, exactly. That's 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 exciting to me. I mean, if I don't, you know, I if if I wanted reality, I would I would watch documentaries, I guess. Um, i want to see fantasy i want to see hyper uh, hyper reality um i was just talking to someone earlier today about uh, abraham lincoln vampire hunter yeah i
2: think
0: i think it's a very underrated film
2: yeah uh i mean it's like uh a couple of movies that quentin tarantino has made like once upon a time in hollywood and inglorious bastards where obviously he's changing the ending of history and uh you know it's his films are fantasy so it's I don't take them as historical, you know, dramas or action films. You know, he, he's, he's dealing with genre and fantasy. So I, uh, you know, I never have a problem when he does, uh, anything like that. And, you know, a a movie like, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter are perfectly fine films, you know, to, uh, the the fact that he's like the president and he's a vampire killer like that doesn't bother me in the least like why why wouldn't that be a concept that's a great idea everybody loves vam everybody loves vampires and everybody loves Abraham Lincoln so why doesn't he just hunt vampires it makes sense to me um I guess to sort of go back to what I was saying about something that could take me out of a movie is I think like the one thing that could take me out of a movie is like sort of like an overabundance of not great CGI could take me out of the movie. Like there's definitely been a few films where I start to get um, bored with the overload of CGI or the over, over dependency on it. I think it was like Sucker Punch where I started to get bored at the end and I really didn't want to because it was that scene in the train with all the robots and I was like, this scene should be like a, an amazing scene but I just wasn't just wasn't feeling it when I saw it that day.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that can, that can become a problem. I mean, it's a, it's a tool like, you know, like, like other, you know, tools in the filmmaking bag of tricks, whether it's, you know, rear projection or matte paintings or, um, or what have you, but I don't know, maybe it's the, it's the conceit of being told that we're supposed to accept it as, as real or supposed to accept it as actually existing in the same space as the actor. Which which the matte painting does, you know, for example, um, but you know, but we know if it's not done well, then it becomes obvious that it's not, um, and I can I can see that you know, sort of you know affecting the way your brain sort of processes what you're seeing.
2: Yeah, but for some reason it doesn't bother me um, when something like Tears of the Black Tiger or Bram Stoker's Dracula does these practical effects that you know are artificial. I probably
1: it's probably
2: because there was some skill that I mean, of course I'm not putting down CG artists at all. I, it almost sounds like I'm going to, but like they're putting in tremendous skill, you know, and it's not their fault at all. It's more of like the director's fault of like leaning too much on it or or you know doing something doing something like that but like you know when you look at uh, a background that's painted or a matte painting or a miniature like there's a lot of like tlc put into those things and uh you know there's some really beautiful digital matte paintings in films actually what amazes me now in in films um is when the visual effects they don't like come out right like they're not like obvious like if you watch something like the wolf of wall street or the two popes where they do like digital matte paintings or set extensions or even parrot oh, like, yeah. too. like that, that's really great visual effects is when it doesn't it's not overly obvious it's not like a cartoon uh an animated superhero like who doesn't seem to have any physics to him you know that that kind of thing takes me out of it
0: yeah <clears throat> what what do you think of the uh like this new you know sort of digital uh you know the digital sets the virtual sets like that they're using the disney's getting a lot of mileage out of this on uh you know on the mandalorian for example um
2: yeah i think it's great i i think it works like that's a that's a show that doesn't it doesn't like i don't know it doesn't uh, bother me when I watch that show because the writing is also good and the characters are interesting. So like I'm invested in the story or, you know, they're doing, they're, they have a, a good cinematic language. Like there's some movies I watch where I just love the language of the shot composition and the editing and stuff. Like a movie that I could watch and it finishes and I can immediately start it over again is like something like Silence of the Lambs. It's like such a perfect movie, in my opinion, and it's got all these great cues to them. But, but but to go back to The Mandalorian and their use of, like, digital sets, I think it's great. I mean, I loved what Robert Rodriguez did with um, Sin City, you know, back in 2005. Uh, Sin City was definitely an inspiration for me when I did uh, Attack of Zords Deployed, because that was all shot on green screen. That was my first short film that I did entirely on green screen and that was my first H D short film. So it was very uh I was very nervous that first one because you know there's no there's nothing behind them. So it's like I put my faith in my friend Jeff who was responsible for all the uh visuals in the background and which is why I wanted to give him a co-director credit because he, you know, helped create that world um that I wanted to to put out there and with the textbooks deploy. So I'm definitely not a uh I'm not um averse to those kinds of ways of filmmaking. I think it's very exciting uh kind of filmmaking and people like Rob Rodriguez and John Favreau are are doing really awesome things uh with that kind of filmmaking.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um and the uh Alita Battle Angel, I think was the one of the more recent also from Rodriguez. Um that
2: Yeah, I really liked I that was one. amazing. I, I, yeah, I thought it was really great. It's too bad it may not get a sequel because I was like hoping for one. And I remember hearing about that movie for years, you know, because James Cameron wanted to do it and when they finally were like gonna release it, I was really excited and I wasn't disappointed with it. I thought it was quite good.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did too. And um and yeah, and I'm glad that I'm glad that Rodriguez got to uh Uh, got to finish it because the world building in that movie i think is is really i think that's the that's the main feature i mean yeah there's a there there is there is a narrative to it but i think what really makes that movie work is you know how how rich this world feels um so that's uh it's it's really cool and you know and, and it's you couldn't i mean it would take, it would take years to do something like that, um, you know, totally, totally practically, and, and you still might not ever get the same kind of look like you had, like you got with the, uh, um, you know, with the, with the character.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought the, even though, like, she has big eyes, like an anime character, like, I thought she was very convincing in that world, you know, she looked realistic to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It looked it looked like it it looked in place in the world that they, that they created around that.
2: Um, yeah, for sure.
0: So, um, so, okay. But getting back to, getting back to the, the retrospective, we, after the, after the bumpers, and we kind of get into your sort of the, the meat of your, your shorts taking the gloves off, so to speak with the, uh, with the subject matter uh, between, between William and then, again with uh, with bff girls
2: i would say like i went swinging for the fences you know uh because the idea of bff girls was like the, the sort of joke idea was that it's like an episode plucked from a season uh my wife and i were watching a lot of sailor moon at the time and we liked that it was like a monster of the week kind of show and uh she was the one who that it would be funny if, like, there's, like, Sailor Moon fought, like, a tampon monster or something like that. So we decided to go with the idea of these girls transforming into uh, Japanese superheroes and battling a tampon monster. And the idea of the girls transforming into Japanese superheroes came from um, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, because I remember as a kid watching... The the show and noticing, like, when they turned into the Power Rangers, that the, the show looked different. And it was because they cut together footage of the Japanese show, Super Sentai, with the American footage of these actors. And I thought it would be funny if, like, some executive somewhere decided to do the same thing, but they don't have helmets on. So he, his solution was well, let's just have them transform into Japanese superheroes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So that was sort of the idea, and, and then it's, of course, like, sort of poking a little fun at the, uh, you know, the obsession of uh, anime and Japanese culture that a lot of, like, American, you know, kids and, and adults have, so um, we thought that the BFF stood for beautiful fantasy flower girls, and the beautiful fantasy is that they can transform, they become what they want to be, which is Japanese, um, and I, you know, some people have thought that was like, you know, like cultural appropriation, but like it—it it is. We're making fun of that kind of thing. It's not like we're,
1: right?
2: Yeah. So, but uh, you know, it—it it had a lot of. <laughs> it, BFF girls has a lot of like layers that could potentially offend people, um, so I can understand the reaction people have had. But we only went in with you know the idea that like we never thought periods were gross and we wanted to address them in a positive light and show these girls, you know, being friends because I was watching some this adult swim show called Titan Maximum, which is kind of like Voltron and all the characters just hate each other and they're supposed to be a team. And I really wanted to have, you know, a team of girls that were actual friends and cared about each other. And I wanted to reflect that in the in the show. So they never cut each other down. They were always like supportive of each what they wanted to do, you know, and, and what they were going through. So, and then, you know, the only, well, the, the, the guys in the show are complete idiots, like Fabulous of Doom is an idiot. And uh, Neko-sensei, which is supposed to be this wise wizard character is also sort of like the trope of the horny old man from like uh, Dragon Ball Z. So anytime he does something inappropriate, he's punished. So so we were, you know, we we wrote it and we sent it off to people and, you know, wanted to make sure that we were being, like, offensive for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons, and everyone seemed to like it, but when we were, like, showing the script, and then we made it, and, and then some festivals just didn't want to take it because they, uh, like, didn't respond well to the, to the humor about um, periods, which I thought was disappointing, (laughs) considering, like, some festivals, like, rewarded us for what we did with William, which i feel is far more disgusting and offensive than bff girls so go figure
0: <laughs> there's a monologue in uh, the big lebowski about how uh, how about how you know vaginas make men uncomfortable like they can't even say the word i was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how in like these movies that have like these survival scenarios like zombie po- apocalypses and things like that. Um, you know, you have you have female characters, um, but, you know, there's no there's no stores. There's no, you know, companies manufacturing things anymore. Like what what do they do when they get their period? You know, it's never addressed in the movie because they would rather just pretend it it not exists. So I can see how, you know, addressing that, you know, sort of directly head on um would uh, would would sort of, you know, ruffle feathers in a way that would um, that would just sort of close off certain uh, certain avenues. Which is why indie film is so great because, okay, it's not right for for one festival for whatever reason, but um, you know, but there are others that will uh, that will take it and appreciate it for what it is.
2: Yes, and that's definitely what I want to add is that the places that didn't accept it, you know, it just wasn't meant to play there, and the places that it did play it was accepted so like warmly and people really uh, loved it. And I've never once won it. Well, no, I'm I'm sorry. I've won an audience award once before, but I, I I don't usually win the audience award at film festivals. And we won the audience award for BFF Girls at the Knoxville Film Fest. And it was definitely one of the best screenings I've ever attended of the film because everyone just got it and everybody loved it. And it felt so good to, to hear people enjoy the film, you know, that you wanted to like make and have them enjoy. And also, you know, to see like, oh, something that I thought was funny and something that I thought was interesting and wanted to explore, people also are getting enjoyment out of it. So it was really very rewarding to, to be in the audience and, and watch the film play with that, with, with that festival
0: yeah oh that's good that's that's good to hear and um yeah and that's that's really interesting and it it definitely resonated with me you know because I I went to (laughs) I went to college in the 90s um you know we we watched a lot of anime we watched a lot of Sailor Moon um and stuff like that because that was that was what you did in college in those days and um and it it felt it felt very much like that, you know, that, that same kind of vibe just with this, uh, just with the storyline that obviously you would, you would never get on, uh, on, you know, network television.
2: Oh, I appreciate that. You know, some people have, have told me that it would be good to screen at schools for health class. And I just couldn't believe that. I thought, <laughs> wow, that'd be great. I wonder who I have to talk to to get that to happen. Um, because, you know, it, it would have been nice to do more stories with those characters. And, you know, I had a whole idea of like um, another BFF girl being introduced and, uh, you know, the arc of the of the characters. You know, I don't know if it'll ever happen. So um, I always thought like as the series went on, when the girls transformed into superheroes, they uh, they stopped transforming into Japanese versions of themselves, and they start just becoming the superhero versions of themselves. And it's because the arc ideally was like they learn to be happy with who they are. So when they become superheroes, they're just in the same outfit, but they're who they are. And um, towards the end, um, Fabulous the theme was going to like create a, a, a girl spy to infiltrate them. And her name was going to be, since the characters' names are Rose, Lily, and Violet, the, 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 the spy was going to be Chrysanthemum or Chris. And then like, she is so taken by the goodness of the girls that she like betrays Fabulous of Doom and becomes the fourth BFF girl.
0: Nice. Yeah. Is that the, is that the one that you think would have, you know, sort of the the, the easiest path towards uh, adapting into uh, into feature length?
2: possibly um i always thought of it as a television show um more so than a uh, feature film um mainly because i think like there's a lot of visual effects in that you know in that movie and it, it might be tough to do as a feature but it might be tough to do as a television show too um but uh, but yeah i always thought like it would be fun to like expand that world there's definitely been a few ideas i've had where i thought about expanding it into something larger and it never just it never worked out um like i either lost interest or I just was becoming something that i didn't want it to be so and that was like attack of the and martian precursor and uh um crow and guilliam and bff girls i guess so i've had several ideas that uh you know, I've tried to adapt into a feature, but I don't know if I have the attention span to write a feature script or, um, or what, or I just really like the medium of short films. So I sort of like sabotage myself from trying to, trying to creatively pursue something as a feature. Uh, I start to lose interest um, because, you know, you, you tell everything you want to tell. And you don't want to give away your hand. Um, you know, when somebody asks, when um, Jane Schoenbrunn and Vanessa uh, McConnell from The Ice are asked for a quasi-sequel to William, you know, I, I, uh, I really didn't want to, like, do the same thing over, over again, so I decided to, like, change it up a little bit and have William's tips for turning tricks into treats, have him, have William just talk to the camera about offering tips for, trick- for treating, and he's in this, like, smoking jacket, and it takes place in his, like garbage can bachelor pad and you know Williams kind of a one joke one note you know joke um yeah so there's only so many things I can do to allude to I I love that but you people. get
0: a lot of mileage out of that out of that joke um <laughs> you get a lot of mileage out of that joke even in the uh in the uh in the Williams tips and, and tricks because we get that one shot of his of his planner <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> there's always like one joke where I know there'll always be a big laugh. And that was the joke for that, for that particular movie. Some jokes don't quite land. That's the, that's the interesting thing. Like when I write, like some things land for me, or I think it's funny, but it doesn't quite land with like audiences. And I definitely like, as I watch movies, my films, I'm like, Oh, that joke never, never landed. Or I should have like worked that joke a little better or tried this thing a little differently. So, but yeah. Uh, but when the jokes that do land, like land, it's I'm really, really happy, and that's that's one of the jokes that definitely land. <clears throat> the ending of that particular movie, where he pours the uh, the stuff into the goblet, <laughs> he was supposed to just like slowly pour it over his head, but we couldn't get it to go right. So my brother on set, he just he shorthand said just airplane it, which which was alluding to um God, what is his name. Robert something from, uh, Robert Hayes from Airplane. And he like, just like puts the cup right at his head and like, so he can't get it in his mouth. So he just like pours it on his face. Like that's what we, that's what we, that was the shorthand for like, let's just have him chuck the glass into his face. And that's why he gets a big splatter at the end.
0: Yeah. I think that that works better though. In, uh, in, in the broader context of Gwilliam.
2: I think so too. Yeah. It's, it's great when like you have a joke in your head, you storyboard it. And then when you, you're there, it's not working. And then I really love the problem solving aspect of directing. It allows you to like really come up with something that's funny or that works on the fly. Um, that's why I prepare so much before I do any shooting. Like I like to storyboard ahead of time and get the schedule and the shot list. I I don't like to like, you know, waste the time of the crew. So I always want to go in with a plan. But sometimes when the plan's not working, that's when I'm able to like feel comfortable and improvise because I've got that foundation of like, well, we could at least try it this way. And then um, you know, if it doesn't work, we can go off script a little bit and try something different. And then sometimes those things work. And that was the cell phone joke in Crow Hand, and that was the uh, the the you know. Sh- Throwing the semen in his face at the end of William's tip,
0: right, yeah, that's what I always you know, I always like to quote um you know Mike Tyson, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, you know everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth,
2: yep, yeah. exactly. you get punched in the mouth a lot when you make a movie,
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's you know it's what you do after that, I suppose that uh that sort of defines you know sort of who you are in your um yeah you know, in your your
1: profession
2: yeah it's uh, it's uh, exhilarating it's really one of my favorite times is on set direct like being able to try and problem solve something and or make make a shot work or cut cut a shot up so it can you know i think like an editor too it helps a lot um to sort of picture it i think it's going to edit in your head and then you know, if something's working you know how to break it up and how you can edit it later. Yeah, it's exciting to think your feet doing those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, I bet. So, The Devil's Asshole. This was another one that I saw first on uh, on Arrow Player. Uh, I think a number of these, I think, was it Crowhand, Gwilym, uh, uh, BFF Girls, and Devil's Asshole, I think are the ones on, on Arrow currently.
2: And Guilliam's Tips, yeah. And five films total.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think Devil's Asshole was the other one that I had seen before. Where did this idea come from?
2: So uh this is one of the uh made for my friend Blake's uh film festival, the live film festival in Atlanta. He was doing like a timed film competition, kind of like a 48-hour film challenge, but you get like 13 days to make a film. And you have to draw a um horror subject from a hat, and then you have to pick a cards against humanity subject card. And then you get to draw twice, but the next time you draw, like, you have to use that card. So we pulled out uh, Demon Devil Hell from the hats. And then the first one we drew from the Cards Against Humanity pile was um, Child Labor. And we sat with it for a few minutes, tried to think of something, and I just couldn't think of anything. And we all knew, like, the next one we draw, we have to use... So I put the card back and I drew another and the second card drew was the LGBT community. So I said, okay, so that's what we have. Um, and you know, we were workshopping it and we thought like, well, we you know, we want to be careful, we don't want to do something that's gonna be, you know, offensive for the wrong reasons. And it's it's just the idea of the chili cook-off being for an LGBT community was the first thing that popped up and then finding the spice that summons this, de- this demon and then this idea of a chili demon and then so that all came about and then it was because of how <laughs> because of when people eat chili and depending on how hot it is, and they have the shits later, it could really like uncomfortable so we thought about, like, the devil's assholes, the name of the spice, and because, you know, sometimes with the shits, they can get pretty uh, pretty spicy. And uh, so, anyway, um, <laughs> I thought it would be funny if the devil character had this fixation. So he's, like, talking about, like, opening up the gates of hell, and, but they're in this person's ass, and they have to spread their cheeks, and this and that, and, like, the character who's making the chili is like, why are you so fixated with assholes? He's like in denial of this. <laughs> and then he just grows to accept that he has an, you know, he has a thing for butts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how the scripts came about. Um, at first, the people who were working on it, weren't sure about that idea being funny. And I said, well, let me write some pages and I'll send it to you. And thankfully they read the pages and they were like, okay, yeah, this is funny. And, you know, we put the whole thing together and. like long- a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm actually amazed at, at how well it turned out. I've, oddly enough, I think it's one of the better things I've written. Um, and uh, <laughs> the, ending, the ending was not um, how it was supposed to be. The ending came because what we shot for the ending wasn't working. And, um, you know, my brother and I had heard this music sting from this movie called Blood Debt. And uh, we really loved the music sting, and we thought, wouldn't it be funny to end it with, like, freeze frames with this exciting music playing, just sort of giving, like, just kind of, like, not being lazy, but, like, trying to just get our way out of this corner that we sort of, like, shot ourselves into. So once, uh, you know, because I think it originally ended with her just pouring milk all over the demon, and then she, like, leaves the room with this pot of, like, milky, soupy chili. And she's just like, eh, fuck it. So, and it was in this wide shot and it wasn't, it wasn't good. So we decided like, let's just have it freeze frame, right? When she's like pouring it and like laughing hysterically. And, uh, and then we were able to come up with this great like epilogue. My friend Jeff like came up with a lot of the jokes in the epilogue about her placing fourth in the break dance competition. And, um, you know, the demon finding a self-acceptance group and whatnot. So so yeah, the uh the idea came to us like late in the uh in the in the window of time when we were cutting it together. And uh I'm really, really thankful because the the ending always gets a laugh. And I'm really thankful that like our sort of cop out like works as a joke. And uh yeah, the film played really well like when it played at festivals. Like some people of course called stupid, which is like what else is new uh with my stuff. <laughs> um but uh but there's people there that like appreciated you know the stupidity and the humor of it so and it got to play at the rose bowl on halloween night for this joe bob briggs like event so you know we didn't win the competition that we were doing this for at the buried alive film fest but um we got to play at a bunch of film festivals like across the world, and we got to play at this Joe Bob Briggs event at the at the Rose Bowl. So like it's just funny how like certain things like work out. Like we didn't win this thing, but hey, this thing happens. And uh, I would definitely say like playing at the Rose, playing the devil's asshole at the Rose Bowl, <laughs> is like this great like little merit badge I get alongside like people cosplaying as crow hands or a barf bag that was made to promote William is in this like virtual barf bag museum that's online so it's just it's just exciting that like those little things have happened with my film so yeah it's
0: it's great I mean I mean if you if you gave me the choice between you know an an academy award or having my film screened at the Rose Bowl by Joe Bob Briggs I mean I I I don't think I would hesitate
2: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly I mean I've gotten way over the fact that like my stuff will never be recognized by the Academy, but like the next best thing that ever happened was the fact that Arrow sought me out and wanted to program my stuff for their channel. I mean, that's like being invited to be part of the criterion collection, you know, for my little trashy movies, like they get this royal treatment and it's, it's really, it's so nice and it's very rewarding and I'm very humbled by it. So it means a lot. And this retrospective means a lot to me too, because Chris, is such a great guy and he hosts such a great festival and um i'm so honored to be in league with so many like talented filmmakers and big important people in the uh in the genre film world so it's cool to be a little a little uh a little part of that you know
0: yeah that's really cool and uh and it's exciting um because you know you have uh again you you have this amazing body of work that is uh, you know it's been entertaining people for uh for for decades now plural and um you know and it's it'll be it'll be really fun to kind of see those sort of all play together all in all in one place um it's you know it's it's funny short films don't get enough respect i think um i think i i i saw um, someone, someone on Twitter had asked Bruce Campbell for for advice or something once, and he he was surprisingly kind of dismissive about about short films. And he said, oh, I never understood the short film thing. Just go, just go make your movie uh, because no nobody's going to watch your short film or anything." And I'm like, I'm thinking, "Wait, didn't you and Sam like make tons of <laughs> Super
2: yeah. Eight? movies? And- yeah. <laughs> Pretty the- sure he hosted." pretty sure he hosted a short film festival that I played at too so whatever uh, um, but no I, I get it I think he's just sort of like you know uh, a, a different way of thinking you know it 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 works for you know the evil dead and, and what not but like you know there's also a lot of there's also a lot of like first features that aren't great you know and um, don't do well that don't become the evil dead you know and they don't they you know, they either don't get distribution, or they play at one film festival, and then it sort of dies, you know, and they have to, like, figure out what to do with it, you know, either they self-distribute it, which takes a lot of time and money, or you sell it at conventions, which takes a lot of time and money, so, you know, I don't know, There's, there's no wrong way of going about it, I think if you got a solid idea for a feature, you should make the feature. If you have a solid idea for a short, you should make the short instead. You know, if you have a solid idea for a feature and you can't make it yet, then you can make a short version of it and try and generate interest. A lot of filmmakers do that. You know, my friend Jill made the stylist, and the stylist was uh, a short first. You know, and it got mm-hmm. a lot of traction on the fest circuit, and she got a lot of interest in in her feature uh, script and that she wrote with um eric and uh and now they got it made and it's on arrow and you know she's doing really well i'm really excited for her
0: yeah yeah that's a that's a great one and yeah and and you see a lot of i feel like you see a lot of films that were that's that were really solid ideas for shorts and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they got pressured along the way or just felt or otherwise felt an obligation as it, oh, well, you know, to do anything with this to be marketable or commercial at all, we need to make this a feature. So they, you know, sort of stretch it into a feature when it's not quite ready. Um, and then it becomes just kind of this lackluster feature that that nobody's interested in because you have this one really solid idea, but then a bunch of, you know you know, not, not, Filler in a derisive way, but sort of a oh, you need a three act structure, so you've got to have you know the protagonist, and you have to introduce him, and it's a lot of stuff that maybe isn't really what's motivating the creative process, um, and you know, and it, and it 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 sort of reflects on the overall project.
2: Yeah, I, I've started to sort of tune out the uh, the question that I always get about like when am I going to make a feature because you know. <laughs> I, uh, it may almost makes me not want to make a feature just to be that contrarian, I guess. But, um, I don't know. It's just not, not the right idea. Like when I know when I have the right idea, it'll be a, there'll be a feature of it. But for now, everything I have is like a short, you know, like yeah. a short idea. And if I, you know, like I have an idea of where Gwilym is from, like I know where he's from, I know his origins, but I don't need to like, make a film to talk about that. Because the other thing is, um, you know, if I keep doling out William, if I keep whoring him out, I feel like there's going to be diminishing returns of, uh, of the character. And I like him as he is, which he shows up and then he goes away. You know, there's yeah. sort of that little taste and then you leave before you overstay your welcome. And I sort of thought about that a lot with my work is I try very hard to you know, make films that are, that are like that, that are, they sort of entice you and then you leave, uh, you, you come in late and you leave early sort of, sort of thing. <laughs> like that's, Crowhan yeah. is a little like that too, because Crowhan begins with these people leaving this store and then it ends, you know, after he falls to his knees and yells out Crowhan, which is, and why would he say that? Like, it's just so funny. Like, it's so dumb. It makes me right. laugh. Um, yeah. But, and it's uh, like, you know, yeah.
0: like, like I said, I'm the kind of person who would I would sit down and watch a feature-length version of Hand, but at the same time, i wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be good. Uh, right. Yeah. And, I,
2: and I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to put out a mediocre Crowhand film, you know, I mean, the one thing I feel like I only have a title for a sequel, and I don't even know what it would be about. But I just like the idea of a title for a sequel to Crowhand being a murder of Crow Hands but that's right. it. Like, that's, that's all I have. I can't think of like what it would possibly be about. And I don't necessarily want to just copy and paste the script for Crowhand again. <clears throat> but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I've toyed with like different ideas for features because like, yeah, the going back to Crowhand. Um, you know, like the, to- there's the to- the totem on the ground, but like, I don't need to know where it came from. I don't need to know who made it. It just exists. It's just there because that's what happened to me in real life. like, I found this thing on the ground and I had no context as to what it was. And later I found out it was like a keychain to promote a video game. Um oh, and uh yeah, it was like for this game Bioshock. Uh so it was this little totem that looked like a crow and yeah, it turned out to be a tie-in for uh, that video game. And uh but I had no idea. And all of a sudden like I came up with this whole idea for a movie, um, just because like this mysterious thing was on the ground. So once you like if I were to give that mystery away, it wouldn't be as exciting or interesting,
0: you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing, you know, that you mentioned is some of these characters, you know, they sort of, you don't want them to to overstay their welcome. Um, you know, it, it would, yeah,
1: exactly.
0: it, it would be, I would say it would be like making a live action, like make, like not live, like, like make, making a full feature length, you know, movie about the minions from Despicable Me, mm-hmm. but they actually did that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, uh, I saw this clip on YouTube of uh, Cruella, where her mother is killed by Dalmatians. And it's just like, we don't need to, that doesn't need to be a thing. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can just be a person who like wants to make a fur coat out of Dalmatians. Like, we don't need all the answers. You know, I don't know if it's just, that's how we are as a, as a, like a, an audience, like we always need to know the answers. But I love not knowing the answers. And I don't like giving out easy direct answers you know about like my films and when i start to answer them i start to lose interest um with you know something like attack like i like that there's a lot of mystery in that first movie and there's like hints of propaganda posters there so it sort of leaves people like what is going on in this movie you know but it's a relatively straightforward story about a woman on the run from giant killer robots but uh but planting those little things in there implies, like, what is, what is happening in this bigger picture? And then we answer, like, some questions, but not everything. And the same goes with um, William's tips. I think the only thing I, I – the only extra information I gave is, like, he has many callers, He um, lives in a trashy – a trash can bachelor pad, and he was raised by his grandmother. And that's it. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't know. We don't know anything about his parents. You know, I just I like giving little pieces like that. But I don't. We don't need to know where William came from or how old William is or this and that. So, but I I I've thought of those ideas, but I don't necessarily think they're going to end up in a film.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 instead, they can inspire other things that might end up in films, um, but not the actual you know not not those act- not the actual explanations and stories themselves
2: yeah exactly
0: so yeah
2: um yeah well
0: i i think um so Brian i appreciate your time um and i know that it's uh, uh it, it's it's getting late, so i don't wanna uh, i don't wanna hold you up too too much longer, but i definitely appreciate your work uh i think it's i think it's fantastic, you know a lot of filmmakers yeah they make you know they may they make a couple a couple of shorts and then sort of move on to features but i think you've got a real voice here in this short film space and i'm excited to see what uh, uh what people have to say uh, once this plays at uh at chattanooga this week it's uh it's going to be it's got to be very exciting well
2: thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time to watch all the films and uh you know, saying all those nice things, and yeah, I hope, uh, I hope a lot of people have a chance to watch it and enjoy it, you know, and I'm, I've got other projects in the works that I'm very excited about, I'm storyboarding two new short films, and I have another idea that I've had for years, that I'm looking forward to getting off the ground, so yeah, I'm very busy. Um, it's just going a little slower, but uh, I'm, I'm very excited that there's like some new projects on the horizon.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really exciting. Brian, thank you thank you so much. I appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for having
0: me. Thank you. Take care.